Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Shabbat, daf kaf, 20. We are now really getting into Masachat Shabbat. We are getting towards the end. This is daf, with this daf we end the first parak. And we jump into one of the quintessential topics of all time of Shabbat and Hilchot Shabbat and everybody's concern about Shabbat, namely cooking. And with that, I will turn it over to you, Yardena. Right. So as I think we keep finding on these dafim, this daf actually starts on the daf before. So at the end of Yotet Amudbet, there's a new Mishnah that's brought down. And remember, this is all within the context of um, activities that can we start or not start on Erev Shabbat or right before Shabbat starts, um, which are prohibited labor, which would be malacha. And if the concern is that maybe some of that malacha would get completed on Shabbat itself. So the Mishnah reads as follows. Right? So somebody can only roast meat, an onion, or an egg if there remains enough time that it could be roasted while it was still day. So in other words, what the Mishnah is saying is, is that you can put your meat, your egg, your onion up. It has to basically be completed cooking before Shabbat would start. It would have, an, have to have enough time to be completed cooking but it could be remain on the fire even after Shabbat started. Right? We don't put, uh, you can't put dough. Uh, one, sorry, one uh, can put dough um, in the oven even at nightfall. Right? And one cannot, um, uh, you cannot, and we're talking about cakes that you would put on a coal. But as long as there's enough time that on the surface of this cake or on this bread, that there's a crust that would form during the day. So what it means is, is that it may not have to be completely and thoroughly cooked, but it needs to be cooked enough if you put it on before Shabbat, that there is at least a crust there. Rabbi Eliezer, Omer, Yerkum, Rabbi Eliezer says, right, and this seems to be a more lenient position, that the bottom of the crust needs to harden. So this would take even less time. Um, uh, so now we're going to switch topics and now we go into a case of talking about the uh, Korban uh, that was, um, you know, given the Korban Pesach and it says that the Korban Pesach was allowed to be lowered into the oven uh, as it was getting dark. And the other thing this mission wants to tell us is that somebody can light a fire into a bonfire um, in the in this area, the Beit Hamokade, which is usually translated as the chamber of the hearth, which was in the Beit Hamikdash, um, right at the start of Shabbat, right on Arab Shabbat, as long as there was enough time for the fire to spread through the wood. Um, and in outlying areas, meaning areas in Eretz Yisrael that were not in the temple itself, um, it would you were it had to be enough time for the fire to actually take hold of um, most of the bonfire. Rabbi Huda Omer the fechamim Rabbi Huda says with a bonfire of coals, okay, um, even in these outlying areas, even in these areas outside of the Beit Hamikdash, uh, you can any amount of it is fine. So as long as some part of that bonfire is ignited before Shabbat, you can light it close to Shabbat. So again, this is part of our discussion, this Mishnah, of what are activities that we can do 
on Erev Shabbat that we know may continue through to on Shabbat. But here, what the mission is saying here is that a certain amount of the melacha, of the prohibited action, has to be completed before Shabbat starts. So now I want to read the Gemara because this is just a very, very famous Gemara that I want to discuss a little bit. The Kama. So the question is how much, we're talking about the roasting, the first part of that Mishnah where it says that you could roast meat, an onion or an egg. So how much does it have to be roasted? Like what, what the, you know, the language of the Mishnah was, right? So that, enough, that it had enough time that it could be roasted during the day. But they want to ask, like, how much roasting is considered to be sufficient roasting? That's the question of the Gemara. I'm a Rav Eliezer, I'm a Rav. So Rav Eliezer says in the name of Rav, So this is a very famous example that's given here. So that it could be roasted enough so that it would be like the food of Ben Dorsai. So who is Ben Dorsai? Ben Dorsai was a robber, basically. Um, and the idea is that if you're a robber and you're living your life on the go, you don't really have time to cook your food, maybe in the way uh, that the rest of us would consider to be thoroughly cooked, right? He would cook his food just sufficiently enough so you could say it was like sort of cooked. So I always think of it as like, you know, like in the morning when you're making breakfast and you're rushing out the door to get to work, at least I've had this happen to me, and you're toasting <laughs> something, right? And you're like, oh my God, how much how much, so I've, I've had this experience where sort of I open the toaster, you know, and I touch the bread and I'm like, is it toasted enough, <laughs> right? Will it have like just enough crunch, you know, for me to feel that it was actually toasted enough? <laughs> so that's what I always thought of. That's what I think of when I read this, you know, comment about Ben Dorsai. So he didn't wait for his food to be completely roasted. So it would have to be that it was roasted enough uh, for Ben Dorsai. I just think it's, you know, interesting how the Gemara basically chooses to learn something, obviously from somebody who we would not really emulate as a person, and also must have been a person who sort of was like a cultural phenomena, right? It was like saying you were learning something from like, I don't know, like from Davy Crockett or something like that, right? Like, I don't know that everyone knew who Ben Dursai was, but he obviously was a figure that people had heard about. The Gemara continues and says, Itmar Nami, right? It was also said, Amarav um, Asi, Amarav Yochanan, right? So Rabbi Asi, Rav Asi says the name of Rabbi Yochanan, Kol Shehu Kemachal Ben Dorsai, Ein Bo Mishum Bishulei Goyim. So turning on to a different topic here, any food that is cooked enough in the way of Ben Dorsai, right? It's roasted enough that Ben Dorsai would eat it. At that point, after that point, it's considered to be completed to be cooking. And it no longer has the problem of a non-Jew cooking it. So what this would mean practically is, is that if, let's say, you were in your kitchen and you needed to cook something and there was a non-Jew who was also going to help you with the cooking, you would have to cook your food enough that it was this amount of bend or side, right? And then, um, you know, and then the non-Jew could take over afterwards and finish the cooking. But as long as it's cooked, this amount of bend or side. Tanya, so now we're going to have a brisa. Chanina uh, Omer, right? Chanania says, right? Anything that is cooked like the food of Ben Dorsai, we are allowed to keep it on the stove on Shabbat. And even though the stove, right, is not swept of the coals, right? Or the coal, the burning coals weren't covered with ashes, right? Because the concern would be that maybe somebody would come to want to rake the coals. 
But what he's teaching here in this price is, is that it's cooked enough that we're not concerned that somebody's going to touch the coals and sort into hasten the, uh, you know, to hasten the cooking of it. So we learn, you know, a couple of interesting things here. And again, that the Gemara understands and the Mishnah really originating concept originating from the Mishnah itself, that there is prohibited work that we're going to start before Shabbat that isn't necessarily going to be completed the way that we would normally complete it, let's say on a Tuesday, right? But as long as enough of it is completed before Shabbat, we are allowed to that action to sort of passively continue um, even on Shabbat itself. And then the second piece, again, was just this Ben Dorsai is a very famous piece of Gemara um, and that, you know, that our um, way of accounting for how much is a roasting is taken from this famous robber who obviously everybody knew about and is even discussed in a variety of a halachic scenarios of the cooking time of, of Ben Dorsai. So on that point, I just want to utter the caution, which both to us and also to our listeners, right? We say all the time, we say we don't pass in halacha, we don't determine halacha from the pages of the Gemara, but we are now in halacha territory, right? This is not agarata, this is not about prayer, which plenty of the prayer details were about halacha, but in a different kind of way. This is Hilchot Shabbat, and the reams of paper and bottles of ink, you know, however that have been spilled all in on Hilchot Shabbat since the time of the mission of the Gemara that we're talking about, Machal Medrashai, even to figure out exactly how much cooking is needed, let's say, how much cooking is it, it must the meat be done before Bendrasai would have eaten it? Is it two-thirds? Is it three-fourths? Right? There's a whole lot and lots of discussion. And I just want to be very hesitant before anybody would think that we're, I mean, we know we're not, but I want to make it very clear that we are not even beginning to attempt the paskin from the pages of the Gemara, we're describing the halachic concepts. And if anybody really wants to know, you know, how not done can your food be before you, um, you know, so that it's ready enough before Shabbat for you to be able to leave it cooking into Shabbat, there are other figures who can answer those questions better than we, uh, certainly not in this context, meaning you can talk to us off offline and we can see what we can do for you. But um, okay, enough for the question, but it's going to come up more and more throughout Masechet Shabbat, probably than in any other, um, probably than in any other Masechet. Um, okay, I want to jump to, we have now completed, meaning on this daf, not these exact words, we complete the first parak of Masechet Shabbat, Hadran Alach Yitziot HaShabbat, we will come back to you. And now we move on to the second parak. Now the second parak is particularly interesting in its entirety for the following reason. It has made its way into the liturgy of the Ashkenazi Sidor um, on Friday nights, where there's kind of a lull between Mincha or Kabbalah Shabbat. And then, you know, and while you're kind of waiting for it to get dark, there's a section where, depending on the shul, people recite, like they daven what we call Bama Medlikin. Now, the Hebrew of that, really, if we're going to learn it now for what is going on in the Mishnah, is Bama Medlikin. With what do, does one light? as opposed to which becomes a very fast davening. And honestly, it's a very short amount of time to say a whole lot of words. Um, but it does it does fit that bill. So many of you may be very, very familiar with the text here. And hopefully we're going to you know reveal it in a new light in any case. If you daven Nusach Sfarad, if you daven Edot HaMizrach Sfarad, or if you, know, you don't daven in shul Friday night, 
you may not be aware of this, um, but it is, you know, it is, uh, I don't know, I don't know how long, how ancient the Minhag is, but it's been going on for a long, long time. Okay, so, we're talking here about, we've, we began with carrying on Shabbos, we, be, we entered into issues of like, if you're, if you're Malacha, you have labor that you want to do from Arab Shabbat into Shabbat, if you want, like, to what extent is that possible? And now we are really at the Knisat Shabbat, at the welcoming of Shabbat time period, right, where we're lighting candles, Nerot Shabbat. But what can you light with? Right? If we're going to talk about halachas in all particular areas, we can't assume that every every possible kind of candle is, is legitimate for lighting Shabbos candles. So the mission does not disappoint in this regard. So now we have a slight machloket at the very end between chelav and chelav mavushal. Chelav is uh, fat, right? Again, we're talking about what can you light, what's going to be something that will burn to make the light. disagree with Nachum Hamadi. Now, the, this Mishnah lists off all of these different kinds of prohibited wicks. Right, meaning the the petil, the wick for the Shabbos candle that you're not allowed to use, and I can read you the English. You can find the English. Not even the point because what the Gemara then wants to do is, you know, understand what these are, and the fact is that these terms in the Mishnah, the Mishnah is an Eretz Israel document. The Mishnah, the sages of the Mishnah lived in Israel. The Hebrew of the Mishnah is is Hebrew, right? Meaning it's not the Aramaic vernacular that came later. And the the Bavli in Babylonia, right? The Gemara that we're about to see is the Babylonian Talmud on the Mishnah that comes from Eretz Yisrael with vocabulary. These are terms that refer to very specific things. It's not the same thing as like, I don't know, the davening vocabulary of Hebrew. This is objects culturally known presumably in Eretz Yisrael, but they were not even known per se in Bavel, let alone, you know, generations later type of thing. Uh, there's Even now, let's say um, in modern times, if you talk to I imagine this is true in each language that is represented in several different countries, the vocabulary for the same exact item does shift. So, for example, American English versus British English in the UK versus Australian English, right? These are, there are real significant differences to the extent that if you were talking about a specific term, you might actually end up with utter confusion. Although I think by and large, people do make sense of it. I believe the same is true of, you know, Spanish in different countries and Portuguese in different countries and French in different countries, you know, and so on. So this is what's going on. The Gemara says, you know, he says, well, the Gemara has to come and explain what these terms are so that everybody can then know what they are. Right, so for example, just lechesh. Now lechesh, which is in our list, lechesh is the branch shocha da'araza. Now again, here we are in Aramaic. Boom! The Gemara brought us right into Aramaic because it needs to put the terms of the Mishnah into into a vocabulary that the audience in Babylonia, right, that the learners in Babylonia would actually understand. Then, so then the Gemara continues to ask because nothing is exactly straightforward. Just a list of terms shocha da'araza. It's Baalmahu. Where it says, one second, you're talking about cedar, right? Like, isn't that just wood? 
Eitz ba'alma, it doesn't mean a tree here, it means wood. Isn't that just wood? Any kind of wood, don't we call that Erez, Arza? And the Gemara answers, ba'amranita de'itbe. The Gemara says, well, there's this thing that's in this particular kind of wood, there's a substance under the bark that is particularly used, right? Meaning, you're going to light a wick out of wood. It's not really, it's not usually the preferred manner of keeping a flame going. But if you take this woolly substance, whatever that means, that's behind the bark of the Erez tree, of the cedar tree, that's what it's talking about. That you can fashion out a wick from this particular material. So what does it mean you can't write light with chosen? Now, so Rav Yosef explains what they understood chosen to be. What is this? It's thin uh, chaff that falls off the stalk of combed flax. Flax is pishtan, right? And that is something that theoretically should light well, but it, apparently you can you can refine it, right? And then there's a product of that refining of the pishtan, of the flax, is something, that, namely chosen, that you cannot light with. So just because it originated as part of the pishtan does not mean that you can still use it for your candles. Isn't there a pasuk that says, in fact, Chosen should be used in this way. Well, because we say that, one second, flax is not really something that's this other product. Abaye says, really, when it's going on, that Chosen is a stalk Right, the didek that they that they smashed it, vilona feet. That's something that they combed it. They just smashed it, and that breaking of it was fine. And the Gemara goes on really through, you know, each of these terms, um, to figure out exactly what each one of them is and what are their ramifications and and is there any principles that we can derive from them? And I strongly encourage you to take a skim of that to see, you know, if we're going to talk about the depth to which the Gemara is going to probe any given one example. Well, here it's got a whole list of examples to probe to figure out exactly what's going on, and and it's important, right? And, and it does, but it's also beyond the purview of our podcast. So, with that, wait. I, so I would just say one thing. So I think, yeah, I think yeah. here we we came up with even though you and I, when we prepared before, we said, you know, I'm going to talk about the first, and you're going to talk about the that second piece. You know, I think the common theme here is how cultural phrases impact our learning, right? So. You know, at the beginning, the Gemara uses a phrase to understand the, mix, the Mishnah of Ben Dorsai, which I'm not sure the people who authored the Mishnah would have understood. And us readers today look at it and we're like, I still don't even know how much that means of how long it's roasted. I mean, I understand it's not a full roasting, but that still doesn't mean something. But it obviously meant something to um, but it obviously meant something uh, to the Talmud because it's a term that's used, you know, over and over again in many halakhic contexts. It's also, and, it's also and, unforgettable. Right. This idea of the robber who's like on the go and there's a roast on the in the oven yeah, and you he's can picture it in your head. Grabs it because it's 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 edible, but it's not great yet. But it's okay. It's good enough because he's on the go. You know that bandit. Right. Exactly. But, really but appealing it's, about it. But it's still, but it's still cultural, right? We understand it, but it still is a cultural reference. And then here to end with this, you know, to start the next paragraph with this mishnah. 
and to really see the Amorayim struggle with basically saying like, this is not our language. These, you know, these may have been things that didn't grow in Babel. They were not items they used in Babel. And really, as you said, to probe and to go through carefully and still sort of respect what the mission is saying and try to understand what all those items are. And, and it also may be that they had the exact same items by different names, yeah. right? That it wasn't just a matter of translation. It could have been just a, simply a different, a completely different vocabulary employee. I can tell you once upon a time, I was teaching creative writing and I, and I, so I don't know how to set up a still life for the girls to write about. And one of the things was a, a candle with a wick, like a standing candle with a wick. And I had students there who, who are not, whose families of origin did not speak English, meaning they spoke English fine, but when they went home, their language at home, and now I have the opposite, right? My child learns in Hebrew and comes home to English. So these girls went home to Persian. And one of them only knew that term, the, the term for that white string from the candle, she only knew the term patil. She did not know the English wick because it just never came up. It was not a, a, a vocabulary word from school. It was only ever from home and home Shabbos, whatever, it was patil. It was Hebrew, it was Persian, whatever. The other girl had no word for it whatsoever. It had just never come up as a vocabulary term. But that doesn't mean she didn't know that that's a thing that you like. But she, to describe it, she would have needed a lot of words right. to say it's that thing that you like where you get the flame and it's there in the middle of the wax if she knew the word for wax, right? It was, it was, ve- was eye-opening to me in terms of just like the cultural nuance in terms of just where vocabulary is used. But, you know, there, some of these things may, may have been very common and just not referred to in the same kind of way. Exactly. So with that, we'll end. That's our tap for the day. Find us on all major podcasts, rank us, review us. Uh, we thank Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Please leave us a comment or question on the Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow's death, go and learn.